cliffcentral.com. Athel Williams is a South African social philosopher. He's a public intellectual. He's an extraordinarily qualified man. He's also the first person, interestingly enough, to earn five master's degrees from five global top-ranked universities. And uh, he's an incredible mind. He's someone whom I'm sure you've read at some point in one or two or more of South Africa's great newspapers. He's recently published this book. It is called Deep Collusion, Bain and the Capture of South Africa. And Athel Williams is our guest today. Athel, it's a great pleasure to have you on. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Gareth. So first of all, I mean, let's start off with the book. Congratulations on, on another book. It is, it is well-researched. It is thick. It is thorough. I must tell you, I had no idea of, and, and I consider myself to be reasonably well-informed, I had no idea of how deep Bain's tentacles went. And I can't believe that in the discussion about the Guptas and Jacob Zuma and all of these other nefarious companies that have been involved and who've been named and shamed, that Bain doesn't seem to make as much of a splash. How have they gotten away with this? I think that's part of their power, Gareth, right? I mean, any organization who could worm their way into meeting with our president behind closed doors after hours for up to 18 times should tell yeah. us about the power they've got, right? And, and I think what we've struggled with in South Africa is we, we, we've tried to sort these companies together who are involved in state capture. So firstly, we say, oh, well, Bain's like a Bell Pottinger or Bain's like a PNG. Absolutely not, right? They are in a category of their own. And we, we miss the point of Bain and what they did if we say they're any of the others. Because firstly, on a global basis, Bain is an incredibly powerful organization, right? They're not just your average run-of-the-mill consulting firm. Um, you know, when the, when, the, when the Soviet bloc fell and the Soviet, um, um, the, the Russian government wanted to move to, towards a more capitalist society, they called in Bain to help them make the transition. Same in China, right? Same in many parts mm. of the world. Um, this is who Bain is, right? And I'm not talking about talking about this as an outsider, right? I mean, I must put it in my hand and say I was one of their senior partners. I was inside the firm. Wow. Just tell me what Bain actually do. Like if you look them up, tell me what that definition is and then tell me what they really do. Yeah. So, so Bain is a management consulting firm. They would do um, really great work for businesses, uh, for CEOs, helping the companies um, grow their business, um, reorganizing to, to take advantage of opportunities, expanding to other markets, all the stuff, good stuff businesses need to do to run better their businesses, right? Mm -hmm. But in a globalized world where the lines between business and politics are very blurred, um, Bain works with major multinational organizations um, who are not just trying to grow profits by increasing revenues and reducing costs, right? That's not how the world works anymore. So to be mm -hmm. one of the big three management consulting firms, you have to move into this gray area where, where you have to be speaking to politicians, you need to have political strategies alongside your business strategies. And, and, and that's who they are. And that means dealing with politicians and dealing with uh, NGOs, and it means sometimes doing some deals under the, the, the cover of darkness and in dark corners and smoky rooms. I mean, all of this is... Uh, you know, Bain in South Africa, I don't know how, how wide their influence has always been, but certainly uh, during the Jacob Zuma years, they seem to have played a very prominent role. 
just explain again your relationship to Bain so that we can be clear about that and people don't yeah. end up saying, oh, well, you know, Athel is saying this because of X, Y, and Z. You know yeah. how these things come up. Exactly. So, so Gareth, just to take, before I answer your question, if I may, one step back, mm-hmm. because Bain were absolutely involved in the Jacob Zuma era, but they were actually involved in, in con- controversies before that, right? Oh, we yes. would remember Bain from the Coleman-Andrews SAA drama in the late 1990s, early 2000s. Um, Bain were also involved in, in really messy stuff with SARS in the early days that actually caused them to leave at the end of 2001. So Bain was in South Africa in 2001, 2002. They actually left South Africa, not because of the mm-hmm. economy, but because of, because of the, 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 the unethical mess they got themselves into and then came back later. So that's important context because it shows that this behavior has been ongoing for many years. Um, just quickly, and your to, your involvement, my, my involvement. So I I joined Bain in 1995 as a young 25 year old in their Boston head office. So when I was doing my MBA at MIT, um, that's where I met Bain for the first time. And so I've had this long relationship with Bain of having worked for them and left and worked for them again actually five times. Um, that shows I'm somewhat psychotic. Um, but I, you know, I've, I've worked for Bain in Boston, in New York, in London, and in Johannesburg. And in fact, my last stint before the more, more recent mess was in, in 2009. So when Bain came back, after they left, after the SAA Coleman Andrews issues, they came back in 2009 and approached me to be one of their partners in setting up the office. So I was actually a partner in South Africa, even before Vittorio Massoni, the famous Italian, got here. Mm. Um, and I left in 2010, a year later, for one reason and one reason only, because of my objections to what I call Bain's imperialist approach to South Africa. It was Masoni with his fluid ethics. And the whole attitude was, you know, we were, we were smart um, people coming from Europe and we were going to tell these morons how to run things better. So I left in 2010. Now, you're absolutely right. You said, Athel, well, if you took that strong a view, why did you get involved again in 2018? So let's jump forward to the crisis. So in the, in, in the interim years, after I left Bain in 2010, I spent a lot of time um, researching, studying, thinking, developing ideas about corporate ethics. Now, my idea of corporate ethics is, is a bit different to what we, what we see as business ethics, right? So this, the business ethics literature is basically business people trying to say, how can we continue making profit and maximizing profit, but doing so ethically? And I'm not being cynical right. here. I'm saying that's, that's the approach, right? My question is, business as a social institution has a responsibility to people, to actual humans, and to our environment. How do hmm. they fulfill those responsibilities while making profit? And just changes the emphasis. So, I, I was thinking about this quite a bit. So in 2018, after Bain had testified before the Zonda Commission, it became very clear to them and to everyone else that Bain was involved in something that they previously had denied, right? That Bain were actually involved in the planning and the damage that happened at SARS. So Bain then contacted me and asked if I could help them sort of navigate through this mess. Why me? Well, one, I know the South African context. Two, I know the organization. And three, I've got this expertise or some of this thinking around ethics and, and corporate governance. So that's why, certainly from my standpoint, so, so for the, they called me. For the, more, 
for the more cynical reader of your book, some of them may say, well, you, you kind of are part of the problem then, aren't you? And, and how do you defend yourself against that accusation? Because, you know, people tend to think very much in a, in a binary way about these things. Are you a good guy yeah. or are you a bad guy? Yeah. And when we think about corporations, they tend to be nameless and faceless. They tend to be these entities by their very nature, legally, they're juristic persons. And therefore we attribute to them what we would think are anthropomorphic characteristics, like, you know, they're a bad corporation or they're a good corporation. I mean, some of the people who worked there obviously worked with you when you had a problem with Bain. Some of them worked with you when you were working with them. And some of them must be very, very unhappy about this book you've written. Yeah. So to your first point, Gareth, about how people should view me um, as, as being part of the problem, I guess we define what the problem is. I look at, I look at the problem as two problems. There's, 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 there's the problem of what Bain did in planning and being part of state capture. There's, there's, that's the one problem we must think about. The second one is the cover-up of, of, of that um, whole um, um, involvement in state capture, right? So, mm-hmm. so no one can point a finger at me at saying, well, Athol, you were involved with Bain when they were working with Tom Oyani and Jacob Zuma. I wasn't anywhere near the firm. I wasn't at the firm at that point. They can, mm-hmm. they are absolutely right in pointing a finger at me and saying, Ethel, but hey, but weren't you part of a cover up? Um, and, and what I do in the book is say, yes, I was. Um, I, I certainly wasn't consciously part of the cover up. Um, but it, it became very obvious to me that Bain had called me in because part of the cover up strategy was to have a credible person to, to front the cover up, right? And, and I mean, it was beautiful. I mean, I say in the book, I was conned. And I'm willing to say I was naive and I was idealistic, but I was conned because what Bain had said to me, and, and the, the emails are, emails are there. They, they are referencing in the book. I've submitted them to the Zondo Commission. Where Bain yes. said to me, we want to do the right thing in South Africa. Now, to any South African, you go, well, okay, that's fantastic. I want you to do the right thing in South Africa, right? Remember, Gareth, also, these were people I've known for 20 years. These are my friends, um, right, but so, uh, Ethel, there are two things that come to mind here, and I, I mean, I, you're a very smart man. For you to be conned, that must have been a hell of a job. First of all, second of all, because I mean, I do think you have the best interests of this country at heart. You live here; you don't want it to fall apart. Right. And we'll talk a little bit about what you think South Africa should be in a minute. But they, they must have paid you a lot of money, and they must have whispered sweet nothings in your ear for quite a long time before you, you fell for this stuff. Well, that's in the which point. in which case. Which case are they maybe as good as their imperial brains think they are? Well, <laughs> I, I like how you you put ten questions in one sentence. Sorry, <laughs> my, brain, sorry. my brain can't handle all that. But okay, I'll try to take the one at a time. Um, you know, it's interesting about being conned. It's got nothing to do with yeah. intelligence. It's got nothing to do with intelligence. I don't, I don't think. Yeah. Right? It, no, you're being probably conned right. is about someone tapping into something that matters to you. Hmm. Right. Think about yeah. when someone gets conned with a 419 scam. Right. Yeah. The, the, the billionaire is never conned into a 419 scam. It's the poor widow at home who's got no money. And someone comes along and says, yeah, I've got your answer. Right. That's the case. And if you look at how I was conned um, and, and I'm not saying my hands are clean because I went along with it. Right. Sure. Um, but how I was conned was Bain said all the right things. They said, Ethel. We want to do the right thing for South Africa. Boom, I'm excited. These are my friends. So I start out trusting them. I st- Why wouldn't you? 20 years, 
These were my mentors. These were my friends for 20 years. I thought I knew them. Why would I start out distrusting them? Then I say to them, but hey, guys, I'm going to make it very clear to you. I've got a hierarchy of interest. I am most interested in South Africa here, right? I'm not here to defend Bain. They say, Athol, that's absolutely right. They put it in my contract, right? My contract said, Athol will act in the interest of South Africa without restriction, right? Then lastly, they say, and by the way, Athol, your ideas around corporate ethics is so unique. We want to embrace those ideas. Now, for a little nerd like me, who's developed a few little ideas as an academic in a basement, to have a major multinational say, wow, we want to bring your ideas to life. Oh, you know, they had mm-hmm. me. So, so I, I want people to think about those steps in how I was conned. It was in my contract. And so I really thought they were sincere. Now, I think always when you, when you question a whistleblower, you've got to say, what did they know when? And then how long before they acted, right? Mm. I didn't wait 20 years after I knew they were conning me to then do something, right? Immediately when I discovered I was being conned, I resigned. So I was at Bain for three months as an employee and I resigned because I realized I was being conned. I realized they were lying to South Africa and I realized this was a major cover-up. So did I get paid lots of money in those three months? No, right? I mean, I, I got paid what you know, an ordinary consultant get paid. What I left behind though was a lot of money. Right, I had a guaranteed package if I stayed till the end of the year of 11 million rand if I worked full time. That's what I walked away from. So this was not about me being bitter with Bain or being angry with Bain or being there for the money. Um, I want to talk about whistleblowers in a minute because that's something that you, you go into some detail on in your book and you've got some strong opinions about that, which I think come from your own experience. I mean, you testified in front of the State Capture Commission for two days uh, about Bain. What is it that they did? Because you mentioned SARS earlier. Is that the most, that's where they did the most damage and that was where they were most involved. Am I right? That, I don't want to spoil your book for anybody, but that's no, 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 no. I, I, yeah. area of greatest interest. Yeah. I, I think that's right, Gareth. What I've, so my understanding of what Bain did and, and my understanding comes from the fact that during my short engagement with Bain, I was able to get access to documents from them Um that I sort of just had on my laptop, my, my personal laptop, because they sent it to my personal email address. And so I've pieced together these pieces based on that evidence alone, right? So that's all I've done. I haven't gone and done massive research around that issue. I've said, I'm going to speak only on hard evidence, emails and documents I've got in my hands, all of which I've obviously given to the Zonda Commission. And when I piece yes. that together, Bain, and we can talk about what preceded this, but certainly Bain from 2012, began engaging with President Zuma, facilitated by people like Duma and Lovu, who's a mm. TV producer, and right. Sipo Maseko, who's a, a CEO of Telcom. These people facilitated these engagements between Zuma and other cabinet ministers, Melusi Gigaba, Jeff Khadebe, um, Zueli Mkizi, etc., to mm. what Bain called reshape the South African economy. Now, now, let's pause there. We've got an American company headed by Italian sitting with our president behind closed doors after hours up to 18 times talking about the ANC manifesto, about restructuring every part of our economy, about centralizing procurement across all of government, about rethinking how cabinet ministers are incentivized, 
about creating a special delivery agency that would surpass all, all of cabinet and go directly to the president. This is what happened, Gareth. This is what the plans were. Among these plans were plans to go and restructure the ICT sector, which included telecom. And that's where Bain was tested, in, in their words. They were tested at telecom. They then went on to SARS. So we only know about SARS, Gareth, because SARS couldn't collect taxes. And so, and, and we had the Nugent Commission. Yes. Right. So, so here's, so here's my, why I'm particularly focused and, and afraid of Bain being in South Africa is that what are all these other plans? Where are all the other plans? Because we only know about SARS because the plan there was executed. Telcom's plan was executed, but no one's asking any questions about telecom. State Capture Commission didn't even have a work stream focused on telecom, right? Mm -hmm. But Bain were also at DBSA. They were also at IDC, at PIC. And so for me, at ESCOM, SAA, so I shudder at what actually happened that we don't know about, but we know about a lot about SARS. And so it's worth focusing on that because I think that's the blueprint that was replicated everywhere else. You know, it's amazing when you think about SARS. It's actually been such an efficient arm of government. I mean, SARS has really run up to when Tom Moyani started to dismantle it with, with malice. Um, it was really one of the best-run places, and you can point fingers at every other department virtually and show incompetence, corruption, stupid decision-making, uh, an inability to understand basic supply and de demand e economics. But at SARS, for the, for the longest time, they put their best people in there. And something yeah. obviously didn't make sense. And perhaps the, the greed was just absolutely at full capacity there and, and, and full tilt. Because as soon as you start touching the goose that lays the golden egg, which is SARS, you know, governments can't make money themselves. They have to get it from people. They have to parasitize off of the population. Yeah. And the moment they stopped managing that well and they started getting a little bit too greedy in that respect, that's when all of it started to fall down. And Bain must have seen this. I mean, Bain, you know, there are very smart people who work there. There are also probably some quite average people who work there. But certainly there must have been people who, who would have warned government, would have said to Jacob Zuma, would have said to whoever else was in the room at the time, guys, don't mess with revenue. That's where you're going to screw everything up. Yeah. Look, I mean, it's hard for me to know exactly what Bain knew and what their in intentions were. I can draw intentions, I can surmise the intentions, again, from these documents that I've seen, the emails that I've seen. Um, you know, and, and, and part of that, Gareth, comes from the fact that Bain knew that Tomoyani was going to be the commissioner of SARS almost a year before South Africa knew, right? Now, how did Bain know that? Well, Tomoyani knew he was going to be the commissioner of SARS even while the recruitment process was still ongoing. Um, he testified at the Zonda Commission that Jacob Zuma told him that. So, so we've got a situation where a year before the commissioner arrives, the president tells him, you're going to be the commissioner. The commissioner goes to um, Bain and says, hey, by the way, as expected, as we discussed before, I'm going to be the commissioner of SARS. Let's begin planning. So they begin planning and they develop detailed plans of what Moyani must do when he gets to SARS. I mean, detailed plans, down to the level, Gareth, of you must get a new PA, right? I mean, it was all the way down to that level of detail. Now, so the question of intention, I mean, for me, intention is clear, right? Is we were going to develop a plan to restructure SARS, no matter what the question was. 
Now, to your point earlier, you made an important point earlier of how well SARS was run. SARS absolutely was one of the best institutions in our state. Also globally, SARS was recognized globally as one of the best tax collection agencies. And so there isn't a single person on the planet who would look at SARS in 2014 and say SARS needed a complete overall, a complete restructure. Of course, they needed areas of improvement. And in fact, SARS had this long-term plan that they're going to be improving things. They had been improving things. So for Bain and Moyani, the answer was restructure the entire organization, no matter what the question was. Hmm. So it was all around trying to develop a justification for this restructuring. And I, as a career management consultant um, who knows Bain's work, when I look at their justification, it is abysmal. There is no justification, right? So, for example, Gareth, I've got a slide where they say, you know, reasons for restructuring. Um, and there's yeah. three points because some people say so um, because um, um, we think it should be and because there's too much people working for Barry Hall in effect. Um, wow. right? And they begin naming people, right? Now, the Bain I know would never go and target individual executives. Um, and then, oh, surprise, surprise, two months after Tom Miani gets there, Barry Hall leaves. Um, yeah. And we know there are these emails between the Bain partners where they sort of laugh about this. You know, goodbye, Barry Hall. It was, they were expecting that. It was part of the plan. So just to this question about Bain's intentions, I say I surmise it from those activities, right? At no point does Bain in any of the emails say we are here to, you know, we are here to help SARS. It's we are working with the president. The president has said we are key to his delivery um, hmm. and we are here to make sure that this happens. You know, there's a there's a much bigger question that we have to face in, in South Africa. And the reason that we have such a need for these massive international consultancies is probably because we don't have the capacity to do some of this stuff ourselves. Yes. And we've we've appointed through cater deployment people who are incapable of of running important things and doing them effectively. And we've got parastatals that require really smart and really capable people who have the right vision and more especially the right ethical framework within which to work. But we don't have those people. So we have to hire endless teams of consultants at extraordinary expense. You end up paying a CEO to just sit there and look good while a consultancy firm tries to make them look good yeah. and actually does the hard and heavy lifting in the background. This is a perverse system. In, in effect, it's cost the South African taxpayer double, triple, perhaps quadruple what it might have cost if we just appointed the right people. That's and there's absolutely. some sickness... There's a sickness in the machine here that we need to address, right? Yeah, I completely agree. Sorry for, for interrupting you there. You're no, absolutely right. Um, when, when, you know, when I talk about, when, I, when, when people in the US, in, in Bain in America, hear what I'm saying about Bain in South Africa, they sort of say to me, Athol, you, have you lost your mind? Bain would never do those things. They'd never overcharge. They'd never, they'd never be part of a rigged procurement process. And, and these people are absolutely right. Because the things Bain did in South Africa, Gareth, they would never do in the U.S., right? They would never do in the U.S. Why? Because in the U.S., they're competent people as clients, right? Often the people who are their clients have MBAs like them or former Bain consultants. There's governance and compliance in the U.S. And if you get up to that sort of stuff, there'll be consequences, right? And none of those things, three things are true in South Africa. So if you're a Bain guy, right, you arrive in South Africa, you go, wow, these organizations are so desperate for me because they haven't got the management ability to do anything, right? So they're going to hire me. I can charge whatever because they're so desperate. 
Plus, I've got clients who don't look, have a clue of what, what, what needs to be done. So I can just kind of do the worst quality work ever. And I know if I get caught doing all of this, there's, there's, there's no consequence. So you're absolutely right. I think, I think the, 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 the issue to talk about is those three things. It's the fact that we have got lack of capability in our organizations, yep. in, our, in, our, in our parastatals. Um, and, and, and also these consultancy firms are not cheap, and that's how they make themselves useful in perpetuity. It's not just doing a, a one-off consultancy and then disappearing. They, they have to make themselves indispensable. So they have to show you that there are much bigger problems, that you're doing things completely wrong. You need to restructure. They need the, to be there to hold your hand every step of the way. And it's yeah. deeply patronizing, but it's also, it shows you how this, this, the sickness that I'm talking about, where we just don't have competent people and where loyalty to the party has been the only factor in appointing people. Um, and sometimes even worse systems and even worse ideas. But this is a, this is a recipe for failure. And ultimately we're now going to carry the cost of that failure. Of course, Bain have made millions as did millions. McKinsey, as did uh, all the other accounting and auditing firms. I mean, we've, yeah. we've probably made so many millionaires and billionaires all over the world that we don't even know about that have come straight out of the coffers of SARS to pay for the gaps in fundamental abilities that we didn't have, that we couldn't trust ourselves to do. That comes from some kind of deep seated insecurity. And I know you're a social activist and commentator too. And perhaps we can talk about how we fix that in the next part of this discussion. Yeah. The book is really interesting. Um, I'm sure it's got uh, you a lot of criticism and a lot of praise from different quarters. How have your ex-partners in Bain uh, responded to this? And, and, and do you still know people there and are some of them South Africans? I know a lot of people there. Um, silence, not a word, not hmm. a single word. Um, and some of them are South Africans who have forgotten what it means to be South African. I mean, there are, there are people in Bain now, right? We mustn't talk about Bain, like you said earlier, Bain isn't this mythical entity. Bain is a business in Malrose Arch. The offices are, offices are there at 10 High Street. They go to the same restaurants we go to. Their kids go to the schools we go to. They're there. Go to their website. They are the names and faces of the people who are currently doing these things. So we mustn't mythologize them. They, they, we should hold them accountable. They've been silent. They've been not interested. Um, I've tried engagement. I've offered engagement to the South African office, to the South African partners, to the global partners, and to the global board. I said, on my, based on my testimony, based on the book, I'm here. Um, and there's no interest, because there's no interest in dealing with the facts. I mean, they know the facts, and the facts don't make them look good. So why do they want to engage with me? They, they don't want to engage with me because I want them to do the right thing, make full disclosure, make amends, and then get on with the business. And what they want to do is, is, is just get on with the business. Right. So there is no interest in that. Gareth, I think just an important point, you know, you, you talked earlier about this, this disease we have. And I, I think it's important to understand that disease because that disease isn't just in the public sector. That disease is in the private sector as well. Right. Because yeah. because and I tell you what the disease is. It's a strange, it's a strange disease that's not unique to South Africa, but it's it goes something like this. You know, the more I pay for something, the better it must be. Yeah. Right. And so. You know, we know, for example, that all um, most luxury goods are made in the same factories in, in Asia than the cheap goods, right? Same people make the handbag. Some people sew the Prada label in and the cheap. But because the Prada Gucci things 10 times the price, we think it's better, right? That's one. So with Bain, they, they can go, you know, there's Athol's little consulting firm. Oh, no, they're local. They're cheap. 
Bane, oh, oh, that must be good advice. And often the Bane guys have got no clue, right? Again, there are emails, internal Bane emails saying, does anyone know anything about tax? Does anything, anyone know anything about telecoms? We've got a telecoms client. So this idea we're buying their expertise is, 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 is a fallacy, but that's how we, with this disease, do it. The second thing, importantly, is we in South Africa have got this massive inferiority complex that when something's said to us with a nice accent, a nice American accent or a nice Italian or British accent, we think it's much better advice, right? And, and Bain have clued up on this, right? I mean, they're not, they're not stupid. In South Africa, Gareth, it's the only office of Bain's over 50 offices around the world that is led by non-locals in the world. If you go to India, there are Indians running the office. If you go to China, there are Chinese running the office. They figured out that in South Africa, uniquely, you get a premium if you put a nice Italian or British face there. And they're playing to that, and they're playing us. Um, the reason they won't put Ethel as head of Bain, because, no, no, that doesn't get the premium. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, it, there is something wrong with us, and we've got to address this. It comes from a deep-seated sense of, I suppose, there's a there's a there's a self worth issue here that yeah. that is at play, and it, and it's at play in society, not just in economics and how we respond to foreigners and how we respond to big businesses. So let's just talk about South Africa and the State mm-hmm. Capture Commission. You you were there, you testified. Uh, that experience must have been uh, interesting. I, I'd like to have your thoughts on that. And then, what do you think the State Capture Commission may or may not achieve? Because mm-hmm. many people feel it's a bit of a hollow machine there's nothing really going on there are going to be no outcomes from this so far we haven't seen anybody i mean we haven't seen shamila batoy even raise her hand to prosecute one person who's been named at the state capture commission yeah. it's almost as if she isn't there well you know is i can give you inside information is that no one from the npa has ever contacted me right yeah. so so given everything i've revealed um, and maybe they've, they've got bigger cases and more juicy things to follow. But certainly for me, everything I've revealed, not a single person from the ID or the NPS contacted me. So there's a data point. Um, but two expectations from the Zonda Commission. I, I think we need to be fair to the Zonda Commission. They, they are an information-gathering entity, right? They're a commission. They're a truth commission. Their, their mm-hmm. goal, we should judge them by whether they've done a good job of gathering as much of the truth as can be gathered. And I think they've done an amazing job in some places and an abysmal job in other places. Now, this might, you know, for example, telecom, right? Telecom just hasn't featured. And so there might be good reasons for that. So just my observation is that um, they, they, they seem to have ignored some areas and focused on others. Um, you know, spending 13 days with, 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 my, with, with, with um, Angelo Grisi on Basasa, for me, that was completely unnecessary, right? Um, because, again, the, the, what we've done with state capture, Gareth, which I think is a, is a mistake, right? One, we've saying it's in the past, and obviously it's ongoing. It hasn't ended. But sure. secondly, we've reduced it to, to getting money back. Now, that's massively important to get the money back. But a lot more happened than just people getting money, right? There was a silent coup. I mean, Professor Mark Swalling calls it a silent coup. If you've got mm-hmm. non-elected people having now changed how our government works, then we've got a bigger problem. And state, for me, that's state capture. Gavin Watson giving money to ANC politicians, that's bribery, that's corruption. State capture is far more insidious than that. It, it, it's this web of, of, of repurposing our state institutions, right? And it's a shadow government. So what I think the Zona Commission has done is been amazing collecting information, 
this carrying the truth. The the failure for me is around our, our, our criminal justice system of yeah. not having done anything with what we already know. And I think that's going to be a disappointment. I think we get this under report, and I don't think much will come of it, to be honest. Well, the other big disappointment for many of us has been the way that whistleblowers have been treated and the way that whistleblowers are not given any kind of guarantee of safety. In fact, in many cases, it becomes a witch hunt against the whistleblower rather than against the real criminals. Now, you yourself had to flee in uh, November. Uh, You had to flee South Africa because you were worried for your life. Um, There were people who said because you were a whistleblower, because you implicated many individuals in the Zondo Commission, that there were possible reprisals headed your way. Yeah. Well, I mean, it became so obvious to me that I was being left exposed. Just like, you know, I think of the example of, of Charles Kinnear, the, the policeman in the Cape who was, had all of his security detail removed, right? Mm. So no government yes. official went and shot him, but we know someone removed the security detail to expose him, right? Right. Um, um, Babita Diokaran, we know, was provided with no security. And when, when questioned by the authorities why she was provided with no security, they say, well, she had no death threats. Um, and I kept saying, well, is that, is that what we're waiting for? Must, I'll wait till I've got someone with a gun to my head and then call for help. So, so Gareth, I just use intelligence and I've used information from, from trusted allies, right? And, and there's some of this. The day I testified, the second day of my testimony, the Zondo Commission, I got a call from an from international NGO that works with whistleblowers who've been helped, they, they, they were helping me a bit. And they said to me, Athel, we've now heard your testimony. You implicate 39 people, powerful people, including the world's largest law firm, and you've joined them all together. We suggest you leave the country. This was on, in March of this year. Wow. So that was one data point I had. So already I was panicked. I was at home yes. actually celebrating with my family because I'd finally testified. It was done. And they said, you need to get out of the country. We talked detail about how I should get out and where I should go. But I stayed. And I lived in fear for months. And then from all my discussions with other whistleblowers, we kept saying, guys, you know, are we really in danger? And, and in my mind, I said, I can't imagine anyone's going to want to really harm me. And then the beater got killed. Yeah. And then suddenly, I mean, that shook me. That shook me to the core because that said, oh, shit, actually, this can happen. And the final straw for me was, was an email from, from um, someone within the ANC, a senior person within the ANC. Who said to me, Athol, there's, there's a coordinated effort to silence you. Those are the words. And you're in the crosshairs. And what's happened to you at UCT, where I was being shunned and pushed out of UCT, what's happening to you, all of these other places, it's all coordinated, right? The goal is to remove your platform so you can't speak out. Um, this person didn't say you can be killed, but it was, it was implied. And so, and then when I, when I started, you know, started thinking about it, right, no one from the government had ever contacted me. I haven't paid for my own travel, Gareth, to go from Cape Town to Joburg to testify at the Zonda Commission, right? If yeah. the Zonda Commission didn't pay for my travel or provide security. So logic, right, is looking and saying, well, it's a matter of time. I mean, one of the whistleblower friends of mine, who we, all, we all know, I mean, she was saying there were cars outside her house, um, right? And so I began looking at the cars outside my house and saying, there are two cars I kept seeing with no one in them. Um, yeah. Anyway, the point was, with all my cries and there are media articles where I say, I feel I'm in danger, help, right? No one stepped forward, not an NGO, not a company, not a government official. Wow. And so it became very clear to me that it was not just about doing nothing for whistleblowers. It's worse than that. It's about leaving us exposed. So absolutely consciously yeah. leaving us exposed. 
So how, how are you feeling at the moment? And, and are you safe enough to come back and spend the holidays with your family? Are you able to, to move around freely? I mean, what's the situation with your own personal freedom at the moment? So I, I mean, I, I, I'm on my own, my wife, um, the rest of my family is still in South Africa. Um, mm. and I'm, I, my life's tenuous. It, it's a, it's a bizarre though. I mean, I, you know, I, I came to a place where I've got a temporary visa. I haven't got political asylum or anything. I've got a temporary visa. So that visa will run out at some point and then I must go somewhere. Um, I don't think I can go back to South Africa because nothing's changed. Right. Yeah. If tomorrow our president does more than say we should protect whistleblowers as if he can't do anything um, and actually does something, then maybe I will feel safer. Um, but I think the thing with me, Gareth, is, you know, it's not like I wasn't working towards justice and then suddenly became a whistleblower. For the, yeah. you know, for the last most of my career, uh, in the last 10 years, I've been focused on on uplifting and inspiring people. And that's why I run NGOs and youth literacy. And I've been challenging corporate corruption in particular. So I'll keep challenging corporate corruption no matter where I am. And so until this big change in our country, I think that threat will always be there um, because, because certainly private sector seems disinterested in, in changing their behavior. I mean, look at business leadership, South Africa, right? Yeah. The, the, the most powerful group in our country outside of government who represent big business, while the rest of the world says clearly Bain did something horrendous in our country. Yes. We as BLSA will embrace them. We will, I mean, and, and this and this blows my mind, right? I mean, I met with Busi Mavusa, the CEO of Business Leadership South Africa, and said to her, "How is it possible?" And she says to me, "No, um, you know, they believe Bain because Bain said so." Um, and they contacted Baker McKinsey, and Baker McKinsey is an international law firm, Ethel, right? And they said it was an independent investigation. Um, they've said, "No, no, all the bad Bain people are gone. Where have all these bad pe- Bain people gone?" They're all still at bank. Right? It's just amazing how we also fall for arguments from authority in South Africa, don't That's we? Exactly. We, if someone has a title or they work for a big business, we immediately fall down like sheep in front of them and imagine that we can't possibly have a conversation about ethics. We can't possibly teach them anything about how South Africa works. I mean, it's outrageous. We are the experts on ourselves. It's exactly. And, and we let these other people from all over the world tell us how we should be, what we could be. How do you feel South Africa should be at the moment? And what do you feel the vision is? Because you, you've written many other works, uh, some yeah. of them for children. You've written lots of poetry. You know, you're not a, you're not an investigative journalist in your, in your, no. in the main part of your life. And there must be something about South Africa that keeps you interested, that makes you hopeful. And we know that many of us, thanks to what's been going on in the news, the way that we've been treated by our government, rich, poor, black, white, we are all extremely disenchanted at the moment. We need to hear hopeful ideas. We need to hear visionaries. We need to hear people speak about a brighter future. Do you believe in that brighter future, Ethel? Gareth, I think that that brighter future, the the promise of South Africa, I think has been covered with some, some dirt and dust that we need to just brush off. We need to remind ourselves of the promise that we all bought into. Between 1990 and 1996, that period for me was an era of promise, right? I mean, if you think back to that, it, it was one, we, we began seeing ourselves as citizens. Now, that's a profound idea. And I want to see us embra- re-embrace this idea of being citizens. What does it mean to be a citizen? It means I take responsibility for my country. 
It means I engage in civic society and politics. It means I, I obey the rule of law. Uh, it means I recognize that I'm part of something bigger. It also means I've got agency, Gareth. It means mm. I can do stuff. I can hold people accountable. So for me, step one is to, to, for us to relive the promise is for us to just recognize our citizenship and, and act as citizens, not p- political um, affiliates, not racial or, or other groups, Firstly, citizens, right? Secondly, for me, and importantly, what, what being a citizen means, citizen by definition says it's me and others, right? Because it means I'm in society, I'm in community. And so my second thing that we in South Africa have lost a bit is this, this acknowledgement that we are connected to each other, right? Yeah. Because, so, because for me, what happens is we've got this apathy towards each other. I see someone you know, starving or hungry or desperate or, or, or raped or beaten up. And I go, whoa, not my problem, right? not my issue. I didn't cause that. Um, and I think that we do it with all vulnerable people. Um, mm. And this whistleblower thing is just one subset of that, right? It's this apathy. We, we don't see ourselves connected. You know, there's, 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 there's black, white, colored, First Nations, Second Nations, um, colonialists, whatever. We, we, we've got all these divisions going on. And for me, the fundamental thing is, guys, we are here. And we're connected. And, and this yeah, connection... we, we, we don't want responsibility for ourselves. We don't want responsibility for others. We don't want to hold our leaders accountable because God forbid we should be found wanting as well. So instead, we just have no standards for each other and everybody just looks to government and hopes that government will magically solve the problem. I, and I think that's part of that apathy that, that I, you know, I, I think that apathy is there. I... I guess I'm, I'm a slight optimist when it comes to this. I, I've got no confidence in our government. And so I have to look elsewhere. And I'm saying, I'm looking to our people. I'm saying, when I yeah. see and meet people, you know, when I meet a woman running a massive food program out of her house, um, and you have queues of people for, for, for meters outside her house, and you ask her, why are you doing this? She says, I can't eat at night knowing my neighbors are hungry. Now, Gareth, those are people I look to. For me, that's a yeah. leader, right? Not well, unfortunately, but unfortunately, those are not the people who are sitting in parliament. Those are not the people who are sitting in the union buildings. And those are also not the people who are sitting at the head of corporations. Um, yeah. And we've, we've got it. I mean, the world has got this problem. It's not just a South African yeah. problem. And, yeah. and I'm just worried that, you know, we've been looking to the state for so long and that what's happened is that people have now got used to anarchy. They've got used to living in a country where actually the rules don't seem to apply anywhere. And it seems that the people who go to jail are the ones who are caught dealing weed or, yeah. you know, who, who, who are running an informal trading shack on the side of the road when the police raid you. Those are the people who go to jail, not the guys who've stolen billions. They're the yeah. ones who seem to get away with it. So in South Africa, the lesson appears to be steal as much as you can, be as bad as you can, care as little as you can, and you'll get away with it. But be but a I normal person and you're yeah, in trouble. I think it's because we've allowed that to happen. We, the broader body politic, has allowed that to happen. It wasn't always like that, right? It, it's, it's, it, it, there was elements of it. It's not worse now because we allow it. I, I've kept saying, right, you can say what you want about EFF. We've, EFF fill a gap around economic justice, which is absolutely valid. How they go about and who they are, um, we can have a different discussion. But we as society have allowed people to keep living in checks. We've, we've left a gap there, a vacuum, into yeah. which the EFA have sucked themselves. So uh, that's what I'm talking about, agency of us citizens. 
right? We, we've got yeah. no, we've got very weak civil society, and most of our civil society has been infil- infiltrated by, by, by political people and corporates anyway, right? What I'm talking yeah. about, Gareth, it's the same with this week of anti-corruption. You know, I, it blows yeah. my mind. I don't understand when we say stop corruption. I imagine that. There was a guy going to commit some corrupt act. He sees a you banner that stop. says stop corruption. Yeah. Oh, shit, I must stop. It's the same as stop rape. Right? This guy's been raping for 10 years. He sees a post to stop rape. No, no, exactly. So for me, it's all bullshit, right? It's all these veneers we put up to make ourselves look like we're doing something, but actually we're doing nothing. I'm saying, Gareth, we need to start taking examples. And that's why I'm focused on Bain, because I know something. That's why I'm yeah. focused on business right. of South Africa, right? So and you put yourself time, at great personal, and you put yourself at no, great personal risk to do so. Ab- you know, you don't absolutely. know whether. Whether there's someone who's who's got a bullet with your name written on it, no, the I fact is, the average South African just kind of glibly winks and nods as they see corruption happening. Maybe we need to stop paying our taxes. We need to stop being part of the problem. We need to stop aiding and abetting these people in our communities. Like you said, these Bain guys, their kids go to school with our kids. They live in in, in, in the same neighborhoods we live in. Yeah. They they go to the same restaurants we go to. We need to shun these people the way that they should be shunned for the way well, that they've exactly, ripped but, so, so that's what I'm advocating for. I'm saying yeah. name them. If you look at my social yeah. media, I've got the faces up there of the members of the BLSA board of the Bain people. Name them. Because right. I bet you now, no one in South Africa can name anyone at Bain. So we say Bain, Bain. But actually their mate is uh, works at Bain and just hasn't told them. <laughs> Right, so it's <laughs> yeah. a, it's the same thing when Mike Brown of Ned Bank stands up and talks about you know fighting corruption. We say, hold on, Mike, aren't you on the board of BLSA? Didn't you guys welcome yeah. Bain back? It's that level yeah. of activism we need, Gareth. Because I think I think a revolution is inevitable in our country. I think we decide what kind of revolution we have. We could either have a destructive revolution, which is the path we're on, or we can have a revolution that's saying we are actually going to turn this around. We good people are going to do something. And so some of us must stand up and then more will stand up. And that's what I'm trying to do. I'm saying, don't listen to what I'm saying, right? Don't follow me. I had a post on Facebook the other day saying, please don't follow me because I'm flawed. I've got massive baggage, massive issues. But this is what I stand for and this is what I'm doing. Maybe do that as well, right? Well, I, I can't think of a better note to end that on. And and I hope that people will read your book. It's a It's a fascinating read, especially over the holidays while you've got some time. Take a look at just how deep these tentacles go into South African society. And perhaps while you're sitting on the beach, glance around and see if there are any of those, uh, those crooks sitting under umbrellas near you because they may be having a holiday themselves thinking they've got away with it and rubbing yeah. their hands with glee. But thank you, Ethel, for writing the book. Keep doing the good work that you do. Um, you know, there are, there are many people who, who may have problems with you who think that you are uh, you know, because you worked with Bain, that you're part of the problem. I think that you've acquitted yourself here in this uh, discussion and explained your position. And people can also read the detail of it in your book. Yeah. I mean, you've been very frank about it. And now you have to be the one who lives in fear. So always when people put this sort of thing out there, ask what is the cost to them personally or what do they have to gain from it? doesn't look like you've gained a hell of a lot. looks like you've lost something. Yeah. Yeah. Now people have said to me, oh, I just did all of this. You know, left the country for book sales. I'm like, I've got to sell 10 million books to compensate for what I've, I've gone through. So, so thank you, Gareth. Um, and and um, yeah, we, we've got to try and have some energy and positivity. Well, I wish you luck and happy holidays, Apple. Thank to you for you the interview. Uh, it's good to talk to you. Thank you thank so you. much.